Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia at 9.30 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We hope you'll be able to join us, but in the meantime, enjoy this recording of last week's message. On June 27, 1902, a burglary happened in the neighborhood of Denmark Hill in London. Um, and, and in this burglary, a guy broke in and he stole some billiard balls off of a table. The way he was caught was that the inspector showed up and, and tried to assess the situation. And what he noticed is that there was some fresh paint on the windowsill. And on that windowsill, in this white paint, he had seen several fingerprints that were in the paint. And after examining the fingerprints, he called the Fingerprint Bureau of Scotland Yard of the London Police and said, come check this out. There's some fingerprints here. You want to take a look at this. And so uh, Inspector Detective, uh, his name was Charles Stokely Collins, he shows up on the scene and he looks at these fingerprints and he decides that the left thumbprint is the best one he can get out of all these fingerprints. And he looks at all of the people who live in or work in that house to figure out if any of them, if their fingerprint matches. It does not. He ends up snapping a photo of that fingerprint and takes it back to the station to examine it. After having his team look at the fingerprint and examine it with other fingerprints they had on file, they found out that the burglar was a guy named Harry Jackson, a 41-year-old laborer who had just been in prison for burglary, and he had just been released, and they had fingerprints on him, and so they went out and arrested him, and then they took another set of fingerprints of him just to be sure and compare and to find out that it was a perfect match. And so they uh, arrested him and then tried and convict him based on his fingerprints. This is significant because this is the first uh, instance of someone being convicted by fingerprint evidence in, in the history of the world. Now, not everybody thought this was a really great idea. They actually thought this is a little bit weird that you would like look at someone's finger and then decide that they're guilty of a crime. In fact, in a letter to the editor in the London Times after this trial happened, uh, someone wrote this, Scotland Yard, once known as the world's finest police organization, will be the laughing stock of all Europe if it insists on trying to trace criminals by odd ridges on their skins. But what we know now is that those odd ridges on our skin are unmistakable. Your fingerprint is completely unique, and this is actually a very good way to tell if somebody was there. It, it's not the kind of thing that you can, that you can easily fake. We don't, uh, we don't know the criminal. We don't have any evidence of the criminal in the room until you see that fingerprint. You go, oh, okay, I didn't see him there, but I know he was there um, because just a little dust can reveal what was left behind. So I've been thinking about this idea of evidence, of evidence of something, especially of evidence that's something, of something that's not in the room. And here's the question I would have for you about God. What evidence do you have, or have you ever had, that the unseen God is at work in your life? What evidence do you have, or what evidence have you ever had, that the unseen God, he's, you can't see him, he's not in the room, he, you, you can't exactly quantify it or say like, oh, I can feel him right now or whatever. Like, what evidence do you have then that God is at work in your life? Is, is there anything to, to show? Is there anything that you can point to and say, yeah, this is, this is God's fingerprints? Now, some people, and you may know people like this, they just seem to see God everywhere, right? Like, they, 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 they're always like, oh, God did this, God did this. And, and for a lot of people, that sort of leaves you confused. They're like, how come this person sees God doing things and I don't see it? 
I, I, I saw an old, an old Peanuts cartoon, and Linus and Lucy were talking, and Lucy says to, I mean, uh, Lucy and Charlie Brown were talking, and Lucy says to Charlie Brown, uh, she says, you know, life is like a deck chair. Some people place it where they can see the future, and some people place it where they can see their past, and some people place it where they can see right at the present moment. And then Charlie Brown responds with, I can't even get mine unfolded. <laughs> right? The most Charlie Brownest thing to say ever. Um, and, and maybe that's how a lot of us feel. That there are people, when, it's, when you talk about God or the evidence of God or his work in your life or whatever, there's some people that seem to see it in the present, in the future, in the past. And then there's the rest of us who are sitting there going, I don't even know I can get mine unfolded. Like, I just, I don't get it. This doesn't make sense to me. And so today is for the people, and really this series is going to be, I think, for people who feel like they can't even get theirs unfolded. And they're just sort of wondering, like, where is God? Where is the unseen God at work in my, in my life? Where's the evidence of this? We're going to jump into a, a new series today, and we're going to go into the Old Testament. I, I actually try to balance it out throughout the course of a year when we plan out teaching for the year. I try to do a New Testament book, and then I try to go through an Old Testament book, or at least an, a, a chunk of the Old Testament. And so this year, we've done a lot of topical stuff, especially since Easter, and so I've been really looking forward to jumping into the Old Testament and, and getting into this. Is we're, we're going to go into um, the, the book of, of Esther. And the book of Esther, honestly, is not one I had spent a lot of time in before studying up for this series. Um, it's just, it doesn't come up a lot, I guess. If you're, if you're kind of reading the New Testament, Esther doesn't appear a whole lot as a, a reference back to the Old Testament. Um, the, the stories that you know in the Old Testament where you read like Moses and Abraham and all that, this one's very different. There's, and um, it, it, it reads almost like an ancient fairy tale. It's weird. It's got like, uh, it, it almost has a once upon a time vibe to it when you read it. it actually, it's very easy to read. Uh, in comparison to some other stuff in the Old Testament where there's like laws and it gets really complicated or whatever. The, the, the book of Esther reads like a story and it, it, it has all these details in it that, that feel fairy tale. Like there's a king and then there's a queen and then there's a new queen and then there's a, the queen has like a sweet like older guardian person that hangs around her and there's kind of that. And then there's like cunning and bravery and deceit and, and there's like genocide and like all of this stuff that's like about to come into play. And it is, it is full of all the stuff that would make a Disney film, maybe not the genocide as much, but um, all the stuff that would make a good Disney film. If, if Disney was ever going to do, a, you know, a story, they, they should do Esther because it, it's all there. And yet, it's not a fairy tale. It, it's actually a little slice of ancient history. This is some real stuff that went on. And I think when we look into it, my hope is not that you'll just learn some history, because that's interesting, and I, I can history buff and kind of nerd out with the best of them, and if you like history, maybe you'll, you'll like particular parts of this, but my hope isn't just that we learn history. That has some value, but there's a limited value. My hope, actually, in this series is that in looking at this, we will start to look and see the evidence of God, of the unseen God, in our lives. We will start to see how God is at work in your life and what he's doing and how he's at work in our country, and how he's at work in the world, that we would see this stuff, that we will notice his fingerprints all over things. And so I want to jump in uh, the book of Esther. We're going to read a, actually a pretty good chunk of it today. Um, so it, it, um, I, I'm going to read it here. We'll put it up on the screen. I'm gonna, actually going to try to cover it. It's a, 
I'm going to try to cover like two chapters of the book. So I'm going to, I'm going to read a chunks of it, and then we're going to kind of cover some of the history of it. I need to set the story, and then we'll get back to um, kind of as, as, as we wrap it up, we'll sort of get to, okay, then what do I do with this, and what does it matter for my life right now? Uh, so start with Esther chapter 1. Let's kind of get into it, starting with verse 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces... In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the province were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. All right, let's put a time stamp on this and then get a map. Uh, This happens um, in the year 100... um, Oh, wait, let me just finish the last verse. When these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So he has a 180-day feast by, followed by a seven-day feast. All right. Uh, this is in the year, roughly the year 479 B.C. That's pretty rough, right? But it's right around there. Uh, and, and, and the area it describes from India to Ethiopia, it's describing the... the Persia, this whole, this whole empire of Persia and the 127 provinces. Let me just, here's a map for you. So it's that lighter color. Uh, Susa is in the middle. Um, that is modern day Iran. Um, just to the left of that, Babylonia right there, Babylon. That is modern day Baghdad. Um, so that gives you kind of that perspective. All the way out east, India, all the way the west through Turkey and, and approaching Greece over there. This is the, the kingdom of Persia, and it's and down into Africa. It's, it's massive. This is a, a big area. And so right away, the author's telling us, okay, this is where this is happening. This is the, the space of time. And it mentions the king. The king is <coughs> named Ahasuerus, but that's one of three names. He also has a name, uh, Shasansa, which means king of kings. He's also called that. Or he has a name that you would actually know him by, more popular than Ahasuerus. He was known as Xerxes the Great. Now, if the name Xerxes shows up for you, it's because he's this dude. If you've ever seen the movie 300, uh, the bad guy in the movie 300 is this guy, Xerxes, who is T-posing over the whole congregation right now. So Xerxes uh, probably didn't look like that, but in the movie, he goes and fights uh, the Greeks, the Spartans, at the Battle of Thermopylae, and they get their butts kicked, and the Persian king and all that, they go back to Persia. Uh, a, a large army trying to fight a very small army, and they lose. That's the story of the movie 300. That There's a lot of fiction and a lot of Zack Snyder in that movie, but there is some actual history in that movie, which is there was this King Xerxes. He did go try to make that attack, and it did not work, and he goes back to Persia with his tail tucked between his legs. That happens right before the book of Esther to that king. This is the, this is the king we're talking about. So, Whatever bad dude you think he is in the movie, he had a reputation. He was, he was, a, he was a bad dude. And so that's the king that we're going to talk about. Um, and it happens just after the story of the Battle of Thermopylae here in 479. Okay? So he throws a party. It is a, a kegger, maybe to blow off some steam or whatever. It's a 180 days party. So whatever party you went to in college was JV compared to this party. This was a six-month party. And just for good measure, throws an extra seven-day banquet at the end of the party, just to like a little closer, where the, like the men would go party over here and the women would go party over here, and, they, and, and he did this thing. So he was celebra- it's celebrating all of his greatness, okay? Very ancient king thing to do, okay? Uh, let's continue on. Verse 7. 
Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. All right, so this is the ancient version of drink responsibly, right? He basically, it's, and you know, you go, well, that's a weird little detail, but it's little details like that that, that point you to the historicity of this. This isn't a fairy tale. These are, these are little details of like, hey, this is what actually went on in this situation. He told everyone, you can drink whatever you want. You don't have to drink whatever, but let everybody have whatever they want. This is going to be a, a big party. So uh, that happens. And then Queen Vashti gets introduced here. That's his queen. Look at verse 10, continuing on. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, I think we know what that means. That's going to show up a lot in this book. Lots of great decisions are made when he's drunk. He commanded Mahuman, Bizla, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Haazurus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come into king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. All right, you can see this, right? Like, the, like he's a few drinks in, 180 days of drinks in, I guess, or whatever, and he says, um, yo, I, my queen is so good looking. Like, I'm going to get her out here. Hey, guys, go get her so everyone can look at her. I just want to, like, parade her. And Queen Vashti's like, nah, bro. Like, I ain't your show pony. I'm not doing it, right? So yay for her, first of all, like, like, in a, in a whole, like, smash the patriarchy sort of way, like, wow, okay, she's just like, I'm not doing this thing that you want me to do, I'm not having it. It's also extremely bold to turn down the king in anything that he wants. He's the guy who can have you killed. And, and she was just like, I, I'm, not, I'm not having it. It's, it's a bold thing she does. So what he does is, I, let me just summarize this next part, um, he gets some advisors together. And they go, okay, uh, your queen's kind of dissing you. What are you going to do? And they were very concerned about this. They're like, look, if word gets out to all the provinces that your queen is dissing you, then all of our women are going to diss us. Nobody's going to respect their husbands anymore. They'll be like, well, if it's good enough for the queen, it's good enough for me. And then the whole system's going to collapse. This is going to be a big mess. We got to put a stop to this now. And so they're like, Here, here's what you should do. You should kick her out from being queen. Just send her on her way. Say, not you anymore. And then um, I want you to put a decree out there that says to all the provinces across the 127 provinces, pass a decree that is to be read to everybody that wives are supposed to respect their husbands. Let's just make sure that we just cover that and make sure it's good. Otherwise, we're going to be in trouble when we get home. That's what they, so he goes, this is a good idea. All right, sounds good. This is what they do. So he kicks Vashti out as queen and puts this decree out that everybody should, that all wives should respect um, their husbands. Now this goes on, this, this, this goes for a few years, and, 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 and the king is sad, he misses his queen, and there's all that, but he kicked her out, so whatever, how bad do you feel for him, I don't know. Um, and then chapter two starts, listen, listen to how this goes, uh, starting with verse one. After these things, when the anger of king and Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. 
Then the king's young men attended him, said, let me pause here. This is a plan that only a bunch of young dudes could come up with, okay? This is here, just history, okay? This is not like, this is not prescriptive. This is not, this is what we should do. This is just what happened. The king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. I bet it did. (laughs) So they're like, hey, let's have a beauty contest. And we will get the best-looking young girls from all over the, all the provinces. We're going to bring them here to the capital. We're going to give them cosmetics. It says this. They're given makeup to wear. So we're going to do them up and make them look uh, as, as best as we can. Um, and then there was actually another piece to it. Each one of those women was going to spend a night with the king. They weren't playing checkers, okay? This is the, the, you're going to get one night with the king, and then after you spent a night, this is like the, the last couple episodes of The Bachelor or whatever, like... So you're going to get one night with the king, and then after that, um, uh, you pick which one you like the best. And the king thought, hey, this is a pretty good idea, right? Okay. Now, let me pause here, because what I'd like to do in this series is, is look at where there are parallels between America and ancient Persia, or, or where there's some similarities between us and the church now, and talk about present day. There's always a danger when you do that, because it's so easy for us to overlay our modern way of thinking and our American values and our cultural stuff that we all have, and overlay that on an ancient culture and go, they're terrible, they did that, I wouldn't have done that if I was there. The reality is you probably would have done it if you were there because that was the culture that you were in and, and you didn't know differently. Um, but, but I do think there are some parallels we can look at. In ancient Persia, men were valued by their money and their power. It's like the size of your wallet is, is, is how a, a, a man is valued in the ancient world. And women were valued by their beauty. And so if they're beautiful, they're valuable, that's how they have worth in that culture. And for men, if you had money and power, that's how you had worth. Um, I'm not going to say that's America today, but there's some similarities, right? Like I'd like to say we're way better than that. We have so moved beyond that. And we, we're better than that, but not entirely. Like there's still a lot of that and too much of that that goes on in our culture today, right? So that's the setup. There's going to be this beauty contest. Now enter our heroine named Esther. Now there was a Jew, verse, verse 5, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Okay, that's a bunch of names. They're just establishing who this guy is. Now, if you're an ancient Jew reading this account, this is really important information for you to get. Because you want to know how Jewish someone is. You want to know, like, are they legit? Like, is their family from... You know how, like, if you go to, like, some of those really small towns, like, in the Midwest or in the Northeast, and, it's, and like, what your last name is kind of matters there? You know, where people are like, oh, you're from the Miller family. We know the Millers. They're blah, blah, blah. Or, or, or you're not. You have, a, you have an outsider name to a small town. This is kind of the way it is in the ancient world with the Jews. Like, they want to know... Are you from this, this line, this line, this line? Name this guy Mordecai. They want to name all his family members, what tribe he came from, and explain how he's in Persia. The Jews were in Israel, far west of, 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 
of Susa, right? The Jews had been there, and then he mentions Nebuchadnezzar in the year 586. This is a, a famous thing in the history of the Jews. Nebuchadnezzar attacks Jerusalem in 586, the Babylonian Empire. They ransack the place, and they carry all the people off as slaves. The walls get destroyed. The temple gets destroyed. It's a big mess. This sets up the exile where the Jews are not living in Israel anymore. They're living outside of Israel. Of Israel, and they're living in different places. So you've got Babylon in there, you've got like Daniel and the lion's den comes out of there, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Esther from that time period where the Jews are in exile. And so it's just establishing who Mordecai is, how Jewish he is, and where, where he came from and how he ended up to be kind of in the Persian Empire. All right, now, now Esther shows up. Verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed and many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the, young women pleased, and the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics, there's that again, and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Okay, so uh, enter Esther. What we know about her is that she is, uh, a, 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 like we would say, an orphan child, right? Her parent, both of her parents died, and she's being raised basically by her cousin, who's a little, a little older than her. Her cousin Mordecai is, is helping to raise her, um, and she lives up in a tower, and she can't get out unless she lets her hair down. This is basically the details that we... That's not in there, but uh, we do know, uh, it mentions, because it's, it's going to be important in the story, she's very attractive, and so she is chosen to go. I don't know if she volunteered as tribute from District 12 or what, but she, vol- she goes to go to the capital city, to Susa, and, and, and be there, um, and, and during that period, she is given makeup. Um, and then it tells us a couple things. That, that I'm not going to read the next bit, but it tells us, there's a couple things it tells us. One is that um, the women had to be prepared to meet with the king for 12 months. There was a six-month beautifying process. So you know how, like, you paid to get your hair done in your wedding, and you and the girls for a couple hours did the, the thing? This is a six-month version of that. Um, there's this preparation. I don't know what they're doing the other six months. I don't know, just waiting for the term. I don't know, whatever. So there's this 12-month preparation to go basically spend one night with the king, which is crazy to us and, and so strange culturally uh, and, and so, so different. Um, and Mordecai um, checks up on her. So he's, he's kind of like the helicopter parent in the story where he's like wants to make sure that she's okay. And he's kind of hanging around near the harem to see that like, is she okay and are things going well? And he tells her like, hey, don't tell anyone that you're Jewish. Like, let's just leave that on the down low Let's just not deal with that. Just go, go do your thing. Okay, verse 16. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Okay, there's a Miss Persia pageant, Esther wins. Okay, that's, that's sort of the summary of the first 
two chapters of the book of Esther. Um, and the king, she's beautiful, he thinks she's wonderful, he makes her the queen, throws a feast for her, and then he even like remits taxes and stuff for people, like sort of the king's personal business and like civil government are sort of interwoven here, right? And he's like, well, you know, I'm so happy that she's my queen. All of you are like, it's tax-free weekend or whatever. Like they, he, he cuts some uh, people a break. Um, so that is the setup of what's going to happen over the rest of the book. Because that, that starts with this like orphan girl rag to riches story. And you're like, oh, she was this poor girl from this little ethnic minority group and, and then she gets to rise up and she can become queen. And, and, you know, and I could go home and be like, you could be queen too or whatever. And it's like, no, I mean, that's not the point, but that is the setup. That's where it, that's where it starts. Because next week, um, because even in our best stories, there's always a plot twist. And there's stuff that's going to go wrong. And next week, it's about to go horribly wrong. And we'll talk about that. Enter, enter the villain into the story, into the plot twist. Um, but I want to dig into just a couple ideas here on, on the front of this that are for us today. Um, first of all, notice the moral ambiguity of the story. This is not like the good guys and the bad guys. And I want you to see that because a lot of times people think the Bible is like that. They think the Bible is like a morality play or like, oh, it's like, you know, Abraham, Moses, and these people, these are good guys, these are good people, or uh, the Queen Esther, she's the good person in the story, and then there's going to be bad guys, and there's, it, it, we think characters are very flat and that people are sort of very flat, they represent good or evil, um, and it, it's not actually like that um, in, in the Bible, and it's not like that in, in the world. Um, think about the fact that Esther is Jewish. Jewish women do not sleep with, with men that are not their husbands. So she's breaking that law, right? And she's going to marry a guy who's not a Jew. She's breaking that law. She's not lying about her identity, but she's not being forthcoming about it. So there's something a little bit, maybe you could say, deceptive about that situation. Mordecai, also a Jew, is encouraging her and going along with this entire thing, right? So it's not like, oh, these characters are so great, and now she's living with the bad people. Like, it's a lot more complicated than that. And in some ways, I think that makes this very ancient story a very postmodern sort of story, something that fits in our culture today. Our culture's really into moral ambiguity. I don't know if you've noticed, it used to be when we had heroes on TV, there'd be like Superman, who was like perfect and had like basically no weaknesses until we realized that that makes bad television, so he has to have something enter kryptonite. Okay, there's one thing that he can't do. But we used to have these sort of Lone Ranger and all these characters that we'd make that are like basically all good and only good, and then the bad guys are all bad and only bad. And now we like moral ambiguity. We like shows where the main character, the hero of the story is a serial killer, and we cheer for them. Or the main character is a meth dealer, and we go like, oh, I feel empathetic and, and I feel sad for the, the meth dealer and, and I want to cheer for him. And, and like we, we like that kind of moral ambiguity in the way we tell stories now. But the reality is the sinner and the saint are in the same person. And I, and I point that out because I think Esther points us to it for one, but I, but, but I point that out because I think a lot of people have a distorted impression of church or of religion or of religious people. And maybe you feel that way today. You're like, ugh. Some, for some of you, you're like, I can't believe I'm in church. Like, yeah, it doesn't feel like a church, it's a movie theater, whatever, but still, church. Like, five years ago, one year ago, one week ago, I didn't ever think I was going to be here. 
And usually when people don't like church or they don't like religion, they don't like religious people or that kind of thing, there's kind of one or two ways we go with that. We either don't like them because we feel um, we, we have this sense in, in our minds that, um, that, that church people are hypocrites. And we go like, I don't want to be like them. Like these people profess one thing, but they actually do something else. They're hateful, bigots, hypocrites, whatever. And in that sense, when we say that, what we're saying is I'm better than those people. Like, I'm actually too good to be part of a church because those people are hateful or hypocrites or whatever, and I'm not like that, and I don't want to be associated with that. Or we do the other thing where we go, I don't want to be part of a church because I'm worse. Like, I'm in bad shape. Like, I cuss, I drink too much, I got all, you know, I've been, I've been looking at porn, I got all these things. We go, I've been doing all of these things. I can't go to church because those people will judge me, I'm not going to be good enough, that place will burst into flames when I walk into there, like all the things that we say. So we either think we're not good enough to be here, or we think we're too good to be here. And the reality is, all of us are here, saint and sinner, broken, bad, bored, people who are trying harder, people who are working at it. There is a gap between what we believe and how we live. There's a gap like that for everyone. And, and so if you think the church is a bunch of hypocrites, I, I gotta say, come on in, you'll feel right at home. Because you're like the rest of us. We're all, we're all broken. It, people are complicated. And, and that's one of the reminders I get just from this early portion of Esther. We're, we're, complica- we're complicated people. The, the stories are complicated. Even the best stuff has, has weird things kind of going on. Um, but all of us in this church are on a journey to follow God, and by his grace, he is changing us. We are not changing us. He is changing us. But here's a, maybe even a bigger lesson I get from the book of Esther. Um, the book of Esther points us to the unseen God. God's fingerprints are all over this book, but his name never shows up in it. It's actually a weird thing. You would think a book in the Bible is about God, right? It's about Jesus, God's name never shows up in, the, in this book. Jesus' name never shows up in the book. That's why, partly why it reads so differently. It's not like, and then the Lord said. There's none of that. So if you want to see God at work in the book of Esther, you have to learn to look for the fingerprints. You have to look to, to see the unseen side of God. You can't, just, um, you, you can't just have it very plainly written for you. Um, and I think that's extremely relevant to our lives. We live in a day and a time where we don't see God at work in the, in the extreme ways. Like, we don't see a burning bush. We don't see God part a Red Sea. Most of us have never heard God speak audibly to us. We have to train ourselves to look for him in the shadows. We have to train ourselves to see him in the spaces where he was in the room, and we can just sense that he was there, um, but we don't actually get to see him directly. In that way, it is much like Pascal. I, I, I gave you this quote a couple weeks ago in a sermon, and it's so good, I think we should probably memorize it. Blaise Pascal, the, the mathematician philosopher, said, what can be seen on earth indicates neither the total absence nor the manifest presence of divinity, but the presence of a hidden God. Everything bears this stamp. Here's what can be seen. Um, not the absence of God, not the presence of God, but the presence of a hidden God, the unseen God. His fingerprints are here, even though you can't see his finger. We see evidence of the invisible hand. We just don't get to see the hand. And so my prayer 
is that the book of Esther, as we study it, helps build your faith in God. It helps you to start seeing the unseen um, and, and that, that your eyes can be open and you start to notice the invisible hand. And, and, I, and I think about that personally and sort of corporately. Personally, for me, I need to see God's hand at work. I know I do that for a living, right? Like, oh, I try to help people see God and connect to God and that kind of thing. But, but just for my own life of like a guy married, trying to raise a family, um, trying to serve this city, be good for friends here and, and build, build relationships and all of that and extended family and all things going on, um, I need to see God's hand at work. It's, it's, a, it's like a north star for me. It's, it's this compass point of like what is true, what is real, because otherwise I can drift off into I'm just going to make all this up on my own and just kind of wing it and just try to figure it out on my own. And I'm just not good at that. You may be better at that than I am, but I'm not good at winging this thing on my own. So I'm constantly looking for where does God actually show up? Um, where's the evidence of God in my life? For me, what's been helpful is journaling a little bit to write each morning. I'll write out a scripture. I'll write out something that jumps out at me when I read. I read a chapter of the Bible a day, and whatever jumps out at me, I'll write something down. I'll think about where God has been intersecting my life or think about what did I experience yesterday and, and, and write something down and write some things I'm thankful for. I'm trying to train myself to notice when God is at work in my life, and maybe, that's, maybe that would be helpful to you. Um, I think it's important to notice what you notice, to notice what you notice, because all of us have a way of putting a frame around a thing. So my interactions with my kids, if my kids say a certain thing, I can put a frame around it and go, well, they're being like this because of this, and I know, and I see this, and you see someone kind of through that frame. Or if my wife and I have a fight or something, oh, she said this, and this means this, and you go very quickly there in your head. Anyone else do this? You go very quickly, and you've got it all sorted out. You've got a frame around it. You go, it's just like this, and everything on the outside does not fit. This does not matter. This stuff doesn't matter. I just see it a particular way. Every single one of us do that. We draw the conclusions. But here's the truth. Every way of seeing is a way of not seeing. Every way of seeing is a way of not seeing. Every time you make that frame, you are intentionally cutting things out. And maybe your way of seeing is to not see God at work. You just go, God's not involved in the day-to-day. -day. God's not at work in my life. I don't really see him. And you've drawn the frame right here. And God's active but your way of seeing is also a way of you not seeing. If God shows up in your life, you may not even notice it because he's going to show up outside of your frame. And so we have to train ourselves to change the focus, to notice. Why? Because hard times will come for us. Because we're going to suffer, all of us. Because pain is coming. And we need to get in the habit now of noticing God at work so that we can notice him in the bad times as well as in the good. We have to develop the skills to navigate that well. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, the Apostle Paul says this to the church in Rome, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who love God, God is making it work. We know this, it says, we know this. Like, not just in your brain, but in your heart, like you feel it. Because I think a lot of us know that intellectually, but it hasn't really landed on us in, in, our, in our feeling and in our experience yet. That God will work things together for good. All of our crooked lines can be made straight. And I want to remind us of that. I want to remind us of that now, because 
Here's the truth. Generally, and I know there's a range of experience even in this room, but generally life in the United States is pretty good. Generally, right? Um, Employment is high. The economy is strong. But you know what's coming for us? The election of 2020. And so, there's a season that's coming. And I don't know if you remember 2016, but I do. And um, I thought about that in this series because um, people just get freaked out about whatever is coming, whoever, whoever is going to live in the White House for the next four years and Congress and all of that stuff. We get worked up about that stuff. Um, and uh, I thought about, you know, we called this series Unseen, but I actually thought about calling this series um, the 2020 election is coming, buckle up. Um, <laughs> because corporately, um, I, I, you know, I'm concerned about that, and, and I, I want the people of God to see the unseen hand of God and see his work and not get worked up about whatever Savior we think is coming to the White House because the truth is we have a Savior. Of all people, we should know that. We have a King of Kings. We have someone who's already come and, and, has, and will, will set the world right. And so this is important for us to remember as we look at, uh, as we look at how this, this story unfolds and think about what we're about to walk into as a season in, in the church and in, in the country. The Jews are not Persian. They are a subculture with different beliefs, different ethnic, different ethnic group, different beliefs, different habits, different customs than the larger Persian culture around them. And so they live in a way that's kind of weird. You're going to see it come up next week. Um, they live in a way that's very different than the culture, and the culture doesn't like them for it in some ways. Um, and I think that is also true of the church today, that we are, we are living in a different kingdom than, the, than this larger one. And so let's not get sucked in. Let's not get worked up um, and believe that, you know, the apocalypse is going to be brought in by whoever's elected or not elected um, in, in the next round of elections. Um, and let's, let's be the people who, um, who, in spite of whatever the circumstances are around us, let's be the people who are in a habit of looking for the hand, the invisible hand of the unseen God and seeing his fingerprints. Let's pray. God, um, I, I, I thank you this morning that um, the book of Esther was recorded for us, that this strange story from 479 B.C. Uh, shows up that we can read it thousands of years later and we can learn the wisdom of it. God, um, I pray that as we sit here with our own moral ambiguity and our own stories and our own messes and own ways that we fall short and feel like we're not enough or feel like we've messed up or whatever, I pray that you work in that, that you make our crooked lines straight, Lord, that you, that you heal us and help us to move forward as whole people. Um, God, I just thank you for the wisdom contained here. Uh, I pray we learn a ton in the next six weeks about you and that we are people who are a non-anxious presence in the world, who are able to see your hand at work um, when our country goes through its own crazy seasons. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.